0: I encourage you to turn to Isaiah, not Isaiah, Micah, sorry, chapter 5. Micah, chapter 5. If you're wondering where Micah 5 is, it's in between Jonah and Nahum. And if you're still not sure, you can go to your table of contents and it will give you the page number to Micah. So we began our Christmas series last week looking at different passages about the incarnation, the birth of our Savior, that the Son of God took on human flesh. And last week we looked specifically at the encounter that Mary had with the angel Gabriel, the message that he brought to her, that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she would give birth to a son, and his name would be Jesus, and he would be Son of the Most High, and he'd be great. He'd be God in flesh, and he would have a kingdom that would have no end. Well, this morning, I want to take us back to the Old Testament, to a prophecy about the birth of Jesus. And that prophecy is here in Matthew, uh, Ma- Micah chapter 5. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5. So let me read this for us. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word now, we pray and ask that by your Holy Spirit, Enlighten our minds, move our hearts to marvel at this incredible prophecy 700 years before Jesus ever came, yet are fulfilled in him, this incredible prophecy of hope, of joy, and of peace. May this passage move us to love Christ more and to ponder his beauty and glory more and more. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm guessing that most of us, if you've lived long enough, you've had a moment or moments in your life where things have looked horrible. Discouragement has kicked in. Suffering might, might be a part of the situation, but you're experiencing some kind of affliction. And there's almost this place of despair that takes over. And yet you've also probably experienced that in those moments there has been an individual or several people or even God's Word that has broken through in those moments and has said something to you. The very thing you needed to hear in the midst of that despair and hopelessness. I have had several moments like that, none other than the moment that I had with my Uncle Jer, and I believe I've shared the story before, But I was discouraged. I was wondering if I should really be going into pastoral ministry. I didn't know what to do. I felt lost and confused. And it was his words of encouragement at the very right moment that enabled me to endure through that time of darkness. And the reason why I am here today is partly due to the words that my uncle spoke to me. The Bible is... Full of examples of that. People in despair and God breaking through and speaking hope into that midst. You think of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned and rebelled against God, and there's all these judgments that God declares against the serpent, but also against Eve and Adam, consequences for their sins. But into the midst of that despair, God gives a glimmer of hope. He tells the woman that her seed will come and crush the head of the serpent. And here in Micah chapter 5, we have a similar reality. There's a moment of despair, but also a glimmer of hope. But in order for us to really understand Micah, especially this passage, we need to just step back for a second and understand the context of Micah. Micah served in the same time period as Isaiah the prophet. They were both prophesying in Israel at that time. And they are about, the time that they're serving, about 150 years from the Babylonian exile. Not only that, Assyria is on the doorsteps in which they are going to conquer the northern kingdom. And we know from Micah and through the rest of the prophets that the reason why these two nations are going to come and wreak havoc upon Jerusalem and upon all of Israel is because of the sin of Israel. They have broken the covenant that they established, that God established with them. They have been unfaithful. They have been idolaters. And so Micah is set up with all these oracles of judgment. But at the same time, God never ends with judgment. There's always these moments of hope. And so here in Micah chapter 5, we see a similar pattern. The first thing we see here is that destruction and humiliation are on the doorsteps of Judah. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, that word, now, now muster your troops, is important. It demonstrates a key structure of the book of Micah, specifically in chapter 4, You see, what you have in Micah, which I've already kind of made mention to, is God giving these oracles of judgment, but at the end of each oracle, there's a glimmer of God's deliverance and salvation. In other words, God's declaring to Judah, I'm going to punish you for your covenantal unfaithfulness to me, but I will also show mercy and ultimately restore you. You see, the story never ends in judgment, but mercy and salvation. And chapter 4, 9 to 10, demonstrates this. Look at chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain sees you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There's judgment. Micah is telling the people of Israel that they are going to go into captivity, into Babylon. The pain shall be like the pain of a woman in labor. But then he ends verse 10 with hope, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will de- redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So judgment, and then an oracle of redemption. And now you come to chapter five, and it's an exe- a similar structure. In verse one, you have this this display of despair of judgment, but then from verses two through five, there's salvation, redemption. And hope. In other words, the point is this. You see here in this passage, present distress, but future salvation. Now, what is this present distress? Well, there's a siege against the nation. And because of this, there's a summons to muster the troops. But this statement here is being more used as a tool for mockery. It's a play on words by which God is declaring to Israel, muster your troops, yet you don't have the troops that are necessary to defend yourselves against your enemies. They are, in a sense, helpless before their enemies. It was so bad that even the judge of Israel was humiliated, as it says, with the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This was language to demonstrate one's humiliation. The ruler of Israel has been humiliated. Now we're not 100% sure who this is referring to. It could be King Hezekiah when Assyria tried to besiege Jerusalem in 701 B.C., but in that story, God actually delivers Jerusalem by a supernatural means, and he defeats the Assyrian army, so it's most likely not King Hezekiah. It's most likely referring to the near future when the Babylonians are going to conquer Jerusalem. Either way, the point is clear. God's people, Israel, will experience destruction and humiliation Because of their sin. The ruler of God's people will be humiliated. See, God's judgment will be in the form of another nation besieging Israel. And there's no one to blame for this but Israel alone. They've defied God and his ways. They've practiced wickedness like the surrounding nations. Here's just a few things that they were doing to demonstrate the kind of evil that they were committing. For example, in in chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that they were worshipping idols. Not only that, in chapter 1, verse 7, they were participating in prostitution. In chapter 2, verse 2, they were stealing lands and property from their own fellow Israelites. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, the rulers of Israel, Micah describes as those who have loved wickedness and hated the good. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, the leaders and the rulers in Jerusalem are oppressing their own people. Chapter 3, verse 5, the prophets in Israel were giving false messages for personal gain. In chapter 3, verse 10, we're told that they were violent. And in chapter 3, verse 11, they were greedy and took bribes. It has become so evil in Israel that Micah can say in chapter 7, verse 2, the godly have perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. Even family members are betraying each other. The king Ahaz, the, the king before King Hezekiah, burned his own son as an offering to the gods of the pagan nations. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16. So it's for all of these reasons that God's judgment is at the doorstep of Israel. And God in his righteousness would have every right to destroy Israel from the, off the face of Of the earth. But even in his judgment, he's merciful. He judges them, but he doesn't destroy them completely. And more importantly, he wants them to know that he will not abandon them altogether. He will once again deliver and restore them. In other words, though judgment is coming, hope isn't lost. And that leads to my second point. Hope is not loss. Look at verse 2. But you, that word but is so important. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There are several things we see here in this passage. The first is this. God has promised Israel a future ruler. For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. See, though you will face present troubles, and though your current ruler will be humiliated, I will raise up a ruler for you, Israel. He will be your deliverer and your salvation. And of course, as Christians, we know the fulfillment of this is none other than Jesus. But there are several things here we learn about this ruler in this specific passage. The first is this, that he will have humble beginnings. As it says here, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. The significance of Bethlehem, is that in one sense, it was insignificant. It was too little to be considered even among the clans of Judah. In Joshua chapter 15, 21 to 63, Joshua allots towns and cities to Judah, and of the hundred and something cities and towns, Bethlehem is never mentioned. Now you would think that the Messiah, the future king of Israel, would be born in the central place of Israel, that is, Jerusalem, Zion, the holy mountain. But he isn't. He's born in a town that has no significance in one sense. But this is so often how God works. As Ralph Davis states, God is prone to choose the obscure the insignificant, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed, as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. This ruler, the Messiah, will be born in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. But not only will he be born in humility, his life will also be marked by humility. There was nothing flashy About Jesus in his first coming. He was born in a manger. We're told that he had no place to lay his head. He didn't have chariots and horses nor a palace, which was typical of kings in that day. In fact, we're told that he entered Jerusalem in humility. In Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This Was God's Messiah at his first coming. This was God's King. It's no wonder the religious leaders of Jesus' day mocked him for claiming to be the King of the Jews. But he was the King of the Jews. They wanted a King with pomp and majesty. But this ruler to be born would be a humble king and he would have a humble beginning. But this should remind us of the great pattern throughout the scriptures. That he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. For Christ now has been given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and confess that he is Lord. Remember, as Isaiah 55, 8-9 declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your hearts, than your thoughts. He will be born, and he will have a humble beginning. But we also need to know that Bethlehem isn't entirely insignificant. For there was a great king anointed in Bethlehem. He was from Bethlehem. And this king was none other than the shepherd boy, David. See, Micah's making a theological statement with the birthplace of Jesus. Jesus, as the great king David, Just as the great King David was from Bethlehem, so the greater David, namely Jesus, will be born in the little town of Bethlehem as well. And we see this ultimately fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. So this ruler will have humble beginnings. Not only that, he's also been foretold from long ago. As it says in verse 2, One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now there's debate on what this precisely is referring to. But most argue that it's simply referring to the distant past. It's implying his roots are from of old. God made known from ancient times that he would raise up a ruler who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We could say that this goes back all the way to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he says that his son will have a throne and his kingdom will be forever. But we could go back even further than King David. We could go back to Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. Jacob, the father of his 12 sons... They're in Egypt, and he's blessing his 12 sons, and of Judah he declares this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So before Israel is ever a nation, At this time in in Egypt, there are about 70 people. Before Israel ever becomes a, a legitimate nation, God, through Jacob, declares that the scepter will never depart from Judah. And that this figure, this individual, will have the obedience of the peoples. You see, the point is, this ruler to come had been foretold by God alone. We could even argue that it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. See, here God's reminding his people who are facing affliction that he hasn't forgotten. He will keep his promise despite Israel being unworthy of such a promise. Despite their affliction, God's promise will not fail. This ruler has been foretold from of old. The third thing we see about this ruler is this. This ruler is for God. Look at verse 2 again. He says, From you shall come forth for me. So, from you Israel shall come forth for me. In other words, this ruler, his ultimate purpose will be to serve and glorify God above all else. He will not be like the failed kings of Israel who turned from God and sought their own glory and shame. This ruler will be about the business of God. He will be devoted to God. He will uphold God's decrees. He will cherish God's ways. His delight will be in God and he will glorify God with his life. And we read in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father. He says this, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus as this ruler, as the Messiah, was ultimately for God before anything else, even before Israel. Yet in being for God, Israel would truly benefit and the rest of the world would benefit. Because as C.S. Lewis famously said, when first things are put first, second things don't decrease but increase. And So this is who this ruler is. Despite the reality that Israel is and will face present trouble, God has promised that not all hope is lost. There will be a ruler born in Bethlehem. Yet before this glorious day, before this day of salvation, this day of affliction, there will be affliction, uh, this day of deliverance, there will be affliction and suffering Which leads to our third point, affliction will precede renewal. Look at verse 3. Therefore, or in light of this, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The he, in verse 3, is God. God's going to give Israel up. And this goes back to verse 1. They will experience affliction at the hands of their enemies. And we know from Israel's history that the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom was taken into captivity in 587 BC by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was left in ruins. Many of the Israelites were killed, and the rest were, of course, taken into Babylon. But even when Israel returned from Babylon and rebuilt the temple, they still had to endure affliction and oppression. The kingly line was never reestablished. Century after century, they were under subjugation to pagan empires, They experienced the occupation of foreign armies, specifically when Jesus was born, Rome. All of this was God's way of disciplining his children for their sin. It would be through affliction that God would accomplish his purposes. But how long? How long would this affliction endure? When will Israel's suffering, so to speak, come to an end? We'll look at verse 3 again. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. It's interesting. It it was the pains of labor that God described Israel's suffering in chapter 4, verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And here, in verse 10, it's a woman's, or in verse 5, it's a woman's, verse 3, sorry, it's a woman's birth that will be the sign that Israel's affliction is coming to an end. But who is this she that will give birth? Well, some contend that it's the nation of Israel and the, the birth of the Messiah that will come from the nation. And that is a legitimate possibility, but I I actually think it's more specific. I think this is a direct reference to Mary and her giving birth to Jesus, which we looked at last week. It will be the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem that will mark the beginning of God's deliverance for his people. As the text affirms at the end of verse 3. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. His brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What might this be referring to? Well, remember that after Solomon's reign, so King David, then you have Solomon. After Solomon's reign and before the exile into Babylon, Israel became a divided kingdom. Israel was the northern kingdom of ten tribes. Judah was the southern kingdom of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And Micah, I think, is prophesying that at the coming of the Messiah, there will be a reunifying between the Messiah's brothers, Judah, and the rest of Israel. But this must be understood primarily as referring to God's remnant children within Israel. For not all Israel is Israel, as Paul tells us in Romans 9. And this return, probably, as he says here, they will return, is more in reference to a spiritual reality than a geographical reality. When Jesus came, or just before Jesus came, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord, and and many of the Jews already began to turn to the Lord. And when Jesus was born and began his ministry, many of the Jews turned to him in faith. There was, in some ways, a renewal or a revival, so to speak, amongst the remnant of Israel. But it's also possible that these words have a further meaning. These words could also be referencing the turning of the Gentiles to the Lord and becoming a part of the remnant of God. As Jesus had declared in John chapter 10, 14 to 16, I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Whatever the case may be, what we see here is that deliverance, renewal will come, but suffering and affliction will precede it. And church, the same pattern is true for us. As followers of Christ, we are under the new covenant. We're not awaiting the birth of our Savior, but we are awaiting the return of our Savior. And it's this very Savior who told his followers that trials and tribulations will be our badge of honor before the great day of redemption. Where he returns to destroy the wicked and to establish his kingdom of righteousness forever. As Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Affliction and suffering will precede our final redemption. But how kind of God it is to tell us that this will take place. This is why Peter tells Christians that we ought not be surprised when affliction comes. For he says in 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we've seen that hope isn't lost because there's a ruler to come. We've seen that affliction and suffering will precede deliverance. But we're also told in this passage that this ruler will lead his people. This ruler will care for his people. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This ruler will care for his people. Specifically, he will stand and shepherd his flock. His standing is a display of his alertness. He's ready to protect and care for his sheep. He's ready to fight off the wolves if necessary. And he will shepherd his people. That is, he will care for them, feed them, correct them, direct and lead them, protect them. As Isaiah 40.11 states, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And as the shepherd, we also know that he will lay down his life for the sheep. As John 10:11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the kind of ruler he will be. And to really see the wonder of this truth, it's necessary to see the contrast that Micah makes between this ruler and the current rulers in Israel. Just just turn over to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is what he says about the rulers in Israel. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, of course, this isn't literal. It's hyperbolic language to display the wickedness of the rulers of Israel and how they are treating their own people. And then you just jump down to verse 5 of chapter 3. Now he begins to confront the prophets. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. In other words, if you feed me, I'll grant you peace. But if you don't feed me, I'm going to declare war. They're manipulating the people of Israel. And then jump down to verses 9 and 12 of chapter 3. He goes back to the rulers of Israel and he says this. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. In other words, they're in court, and they're making their judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of house a wooded height. You think of these prophets. The prosperity gospel is not a new idea. The prophets in the Old Testament were preaching to gain money and to manipulate people. This ruler to come will not be like these wicked rulers in Israel. Israel. They use the sheep, he will serve the sheep. They abuse the sheep, he will tend to them. They manipulate the sheep for their own gain, he will teach them the truth. They will harm the sheep, he will protect his sheep. He will be that glorious divine shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of the care of the shepherd. This is our glorious shepherd. But notice how in verse 4 he will shepherd his flock. He says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He will shepherd with God's infinite strength, and his shepherding will reflect the majesty and glory of God. It's as though he will be clothed in God's strength and majesty. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He will shepherd in the strength and majesty of God Almighty. And what's the result of his shepherding? His people will be safe. As verse 4 says, and they shall dwell secure. And we're told why in the next clause. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That is, they will dwell in security because his reign will be to the ends of the earth, which means his enemies are defeated. There's none to harm his sheep You know, the the imagery in this verse is, is really powerful, but it's hard to see it in the English. The verb translated dwell secure is literally to sit, to sit. So you have this shepherd who stands while his sheep sit securely in green pastures. As Ralph Davis states, because he stands and vigilantly shepherds, his sheep sit and and enjoy security. This is the ruler who is to come and to care for his people. They will dwell securely because of his shepherding and because of his greatness. And finally, we see that he will be their peace. This ruler will be their peace. As verse 5, the beginning of verse 5 says, and he shall be their peace. Now, notice it doesn't say that he will give peace, though that's true. It says he will be peace. This ruler will be peace to his people. And there's several ways that this will be. For one, his reign will put an end to all human conflict. If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we read this this glorious future day. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may t- teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall du- decide disputes for, for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. So his reign will put an end to all human conflict. A day is coming under Christ's reign where the nations will lay down their weapons. Christ will accomplish world peace. The UN isn't the solution to human conflict. But Christ alone is the medicine for the healing of the nations. But him being our peace is more than just Christ putting an end to war and conflict. Peace in the Bible carries with it this idea of wholeness, well-being, shalom. In one sense, peace is truly hard to describe. It's more something that must be experienced rather than explained. Think of a place or a situation that you consider to be peaceful, a place that gives you peace. Take, for example, being at the cottage. It's early morning. The water is calm as ice. The steam is rising off the water. You can hear the loon singing over the water. The sun begins to rise, the light reflecting off the water, weaving through the trees, the, the quietness of the morning. Over and over again in a situation like this, People say it's so peaceful. How do we know that? What is it about that image of the cottage that causes us to say it's so peaceful? Partly, I would argue that there's a, a harmony and a unity that's present, there's like a perfect fitting at work in that image. Everything is doing what it's supposed to be doing. There's a beauty shining forth from that image. But what is it that causes us to conclude it's so peaceful? Well, I think it's this. In a sense, we say it's so peaceful because what we're looking at, in a sense, has entered into us. It's as if that circumstance has entered into our very bones. So when we say it's so peaceful, what we really mean to a degree is, I'm at peace. Something about this outside experience, this listening and looking at the beauty of creation at the cottage, has caused peace within me. Something outside has entered in so when we think of Christ being our peace, who is far more radiant, there's a harmony and a unity in Christ that is like no other, fully God and fully human. There's a goodness and beauty to him that no image at the cottage could ever compare to. It's as though we will look upon him and we'll all say at the same time, it's so peaceful. He's become our peace. But I also must give a warning. There's only peace for those who have forsaken their sinful ways and have embraced the Prince of Peace. There's no true lasting peace for unrepentant, rebellious, sinful humans. In fact, Micah demonstrates that part of Christ establishing peace is by destroying the wicked from the face of the earth. He will destroy his enemies, those who live in sinful rebellion against him, and he will establish peace forevermore. Friend, the Bible tells us that we are at enmity with the King but this king, this great shepherd, has laid down his life for the sheep to reconcile us back to himself. To restore peace between us and himself. Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to know the true everlasting peace of God. But you must renounce living for sin and turn to him, the prince of of peace he will grant you forgiveness he will grant you everlasting peace you see here in this passage these five verses we actually have both the beginning of jesus's rule and the consummation of his rule he was born in bethlehem the beginning of his rule He accomplished his work of salvation through his death and resurrection and his first coming. But he will also return to establish his reign to the ends of the earth. He will establish peace forevermore. That is the consummation of his rule. Christian, hope is not loss. We have a Savior and he's coming back for his children. He will and he does care for us as the good shepherd that he is. We will dwell secure with him and he will be our peace. And to close in Revelation 7 chapter Revelation chapter 7 verses 11 to 17 John the Apostle has this glorious vision of this multitude of people before the throne of God that no one can number, and this is what he sees. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in right robes and from where have they come? And I, that is John, said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Affliction will proceed Glorification. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And hear this He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. We won't need walls for protection. The presence of God Himself, the presence of our great shepherd, will shelter us. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The, sh- the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know your peace, in your mercy, God, by your Spirit, breathe peace into their soul. Cause them to turn to the Prince of Peace, the one who can truly forgive them of their sins and give them everlasting life and everlasting peace. And Lord, help us as your people to keep our eyes fixed on the day when Christ will establish peace forevermore. We pray this in his name. Amen.